Hi guys and welcome back to Unscalable. So today I'm super excited to have Heaton Shah on the show. Heaton is the co-founder of Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics. Uh, Heaton is currently on his third startup, which was previously called FYI and now Nira. In this episode, we're going to be digging into the lessons he learned after starting FYI and then pivoting to Nira. Heaton, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. One of my favorite topics. <laughs> so what was the original idea for FYI? Uh, we wanted to help people find their documents across the different cloud services they used. And in our case, we made a few very key discoveries. So one, obviously, this is a problem everybody has. So I like problems like that. Um, uh, two, um, people were were actually pinging other people in Slack and other ways, email, et cetera, asking, hey, do you know where that document is? Uh, and people were actually not satisfied with the search boxes that they were using to find documents for all kinds of reasons. So we basically mapped all the things we learned about how people find documents and slapped them into an interface that's not just a search box. So our interface had a feed where you could see all the things that were changing recently that you have access to. It had a sidebar that showed you all the people you collaborated with. And we kind of automatically pulled that data in once you connected those different services that we connected to. And we got to about two dozen services that we connected to, all the all the usual suspects that you know have APIs and that we could use. Cool. Um, so before we go into the pivots, just curious, like how did you validate the original idea? Like did you test with customers originally or like how did you know if it would work or not work? Yeah. So the way we did it is actually we built something in five days. We connected to about three different APIs, maybe a few more, uh, Google, uh, Dropbox, Box, and even like OneDrive, actually, I believe at that time. So we connected to a bunch of them. We basically did a small cohort of people, so 20 to 30 people that were using that thing we built in five days to try to find documents. And what we're trying to find, figure out is, is our approach to it with just a search box? Because back then it was just a search box. We were trying to figure out something very interesting. We were trying to figure out why the search box solutions for enterprise search, which is what they call this, have all failed, right? And we learned a lot from that five-day MVP. And we used that to inform kind of the thing I described that we actually landed on, which is a way we used to call it... um, Find your, the headline on the homepage was find your documents in three clicks or less. And that was really kind of almost like too, too effective. Not that anything is too effective when it comes to headlines and stuff, but like it was so effective. People were really curious and it moved them through the funnel into kind of using the product. Also, it was great that within like by the time you connected the services and landed on our interface, you were able to see a tremendous amount of information that was contextually relevant to you because these are things that are changing in your sort of environment, right? Like in your work environment. So um, that was kind of the experience we got to, but we tested it by trying to figure out why all the things before us failed at doing it a certain way, which is the old way people did it, which is what you would call an enterprise search tool. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I think so for me, like when I started Sendable, the original idea was just an SMS and email scheduler. And then over time it kind of evolved into a social media tool. So I'm curious, like, how did you get to the point of needing to pivot? Like, how did you realize it needs to be this big pivot from that into what it's become now? Yeah, for us, like, and I think for anybody that's uh, reasonable uh, when when you're working on this stuff, and reasonable meaning willing to take customer feedback and kind of translate it into kind of, you know, your execution, which I know it sounds funny, but like, 
back in the day, people were less reasonable and it was okay because like there were just so many opportunities that if you, I call it a hop, if you hop around instead of actually pivoting, you would find something worthy. I, I hopped around a lot in the early days. Now with so many different products on the market and so much competition, I think it's much harder to just say, oh, I'm just going to randomly change directions with my business. So we weren't going to do that. Uh, and we actually still feel like what we had built is still a massive opportunity. Um, we just decided that we found an even bigger opportunity when it came to a more fundamental need that companies have. So um, what we discovered is that companies have a major problem knowing who has access to what. And so that kind of, there was a bunch of people using our product to kind of figure those things out in a number of different ways. And that is one of the big things that led us to this. Another big thing is we always knew in our business because it's a tool we want everyone in a company to use um, that we would have to go through IT teams. And so we just started talking to IT teams about what we were doing for employees. And one of the conversations, which then repeated like five times, was some IT person saying, hey, we really like what you've done on the enterprise search tool and how it looks and feels. Let We're going to show you some of the interfaces we use today to manage stuff around who has access to what and then removing access, changing access. What we would like from you is to build a better version of that that is similar to the user experience you've created for employees. But can you do it for us? And to me, like we were already planning on making IT happy because we knew we had to make them happy to get enterprise-wide adoption, uh, not just teams and not just individuals. And so we were all in on, okay, well, great. Like you just told us, you just told us something like layers, layers and layers of things, right? Like layer number one is like, we really like what you built and we believe you can build a good product, which is already like stepping into the right path, right? Of getting their mindset in a, oh, can you help us? Then they were willing to show us the inadequacies of the tools that they were currently using. And then they were able to say, as a result of these inadequacies and what you showed us you're building, can you just build this for us? And here's the thing. We didn't get into those conversations saying, we want to know your problems. What do you want us to build for you? We get in, went into those conversations like, here's a tool we built. We're looking to get organizational-wide adoption for it. Can you help us? And instead, they flipped it on us and said, no, 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 no. Can you help us directly? Because this tool is cool. We don't care about this. We care about this other thing that's really important to us. And so that was the kind of more like storyline and bigger picture of how we kind of got like when someone tells you something like that and they're in a position of being a buyer and can write checks, right? Like around products. And they tell you the products we use are inadequate and they're willing to show you those. And they say, now go help us. You kind of can't do anything, but really perk up and be like, wait, hold on. Is this thing we were doing actually the thing? Or is this this other thing that they're saying they really need and they're the buyer? So that that's kind of the, the big kind of aha uh, realization. Uh, and we were always going to build for IT. So that's the one thing about this. Like, we, It's not like one of those things where we're like, oh, we never want to build for them. We already knew that or had an intuition and a feeling that like, hey, these people are going to be important for our business. Um, and then, yeah, I guess you could have probably kept the name FYI, I assume, with the pivot. What made you decide to change the name to Nira? Yeah, we could have kept the name. Um, there's a, a few reasons we, we didn't. One, we, we couldn't easily get FYI.com. 
And having built many different businesses on the internet, countless ones, like I want a .com and I want it to be short. And like, this is a personal thing. Like, I don't care what anyone else in the company says, this is important to me. Uh, and uh, so uh, we wanted a .com. So we found a .com. It happens to be four letters, which is awesome. And I'm super stoked and happy about it. I think it's, it's perfect for what we're doing now. And, and FYI, as a name, it sounds like a good name, but it's like a thing, a moniker, an acronym. People use it to refer to like um, for your information. So the way we, we had kind of co-opted it is we were telling people, oh, it's find your information, right? Um, and that was, the, that was the, our, our play on it. Uh, even at my last company, Kissmetrics, uh, Kiss was actually a play on keep it simple, stupid. And, and our play was keep it simple software. And that's what we were saying about analytics software, which tends to be very complicated or used to be uh, before we came around. So. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, uh, Nira.com, obviously, it's a four-letter domain, which is incredible. Uh, how did you go about securing that? Did you have contacts or was, was, it, was, it, was it available already when you kind of went out to get it? Or how, how did you find that name? Yeah, I, I, my, my uh, co-founder is, is very good at branding. She used to work in CPG and ran innovation and, and branding sort of things that not just touch branding, but it was her responsibility and her team's responsibilities. Um, and so I knew if I got her involved in this, it would be like a brand exercise and all that stuff, like how a lot of startups go hire someone. She like just does it like even without me, like she could whip that up and we have an amazing name. The problem I had with that is if you go that route, you end up these days not being able to get the .com because you get hung up on some name you really like. And then you got to figure out a way to tweak it. Just like with FYI, we had to get use FYI.com, which everyone confused because it just doesn't spell right. Right. Um, and, and so useify or something like that, people would say, or use FYI. It's like, no, 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 the company's FYI uh, or the product's FYI, but that, that's fine. Um, and so we didn't want to get in that situation. Thus, we basically went in, in like kind of, uh, or I actually obfuscated the process and just went on a hunt. It took me about five days, found that domain. And then I have a very good friend who's got some of the domains that are out there that you probably have heard of, uh, quite a few of them for people, .coms. And I said, hey, I need this. One, he's like, well, okay, tell me about the pivot and the product. Because uh, like, you know, he was doing his mini branding thing, like, does it make sense? Um, and he's the same person that was working on getting us FYI.com and he couldn't. Uh, well, I'm sure he could have in time. We just didn't have time for him to get it. He's very good at this. Um, and so then I just dropped it in his lap. And said, hey, I want this. He's like, cool, cool. Makes sense for the name and all that stuff. I think I can get it. Pretty sure I can. I'm pretty sure I can get it. Not fast, but in some reasonable timeline. Uh, and he, he went and kind of did his thing to go figure out how to get it. Um, I, I think uh, it's really challenging to find a .com that has, that's good, that people can like say at, at this point. But they are out there and they just cost a whole bunch of money, right? So... Um, you know, you, you want to do it at the right time kind of thing when you either have the money, have conviction or get lucky and find a cheap one that is still a dot com. Right. So um, I think those are the things that were running through my head why, and why I kind of pushed this through because um, I think this is a good name. I obviously definitely aligned with Marie, my co-founder, before having my friend go find the domain for us or go get it for us. Um, but that was the process. It was, it was no rhyme or reason. I just had very specific criteria and I obviously knew what the product was, but there was no branding exercise, no analysis, no, you know, decks around that, which are, I think fantastic and wonderful. This was just one where like, 
I knew I had to find it. I knew I had to, and I knew I had to present that to my co-founder versus going through a sort of branding process, which we had done in the past for other things we had done. So it works, but I was fearful of not being able to get the .com we got attached to. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure this cost like either five or six figures, I assume. Did you guys raise any, any funding or is it all kind of bootstrapped at this point? So, so we, we, we um, were self-funding the business until early last year. And since then, we've, we've raised a bunch of money. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So looking back, obviously, with the pivots and kind of where you started, what, what, what would you have done differently to find product market fit sooner, do you think? You know, I get asked that a lot about this one. Um, I, think, I think there's some misconceptions about pivots and, and, and just startups in general. Um, and it's because most people have limited experience, even if they have their own. Uh, but everyone re- resonates with what I'm about to say. So it is what it is. Um, you can't predict anything pre-product market fit. You can't predict when you're going to hit it. You can't predict what a customer is going to tell you. You can't predict how hard it is to build the product either. Believe it or not, you can't predict that either. Because like you just don't know enough. No matter how great of an engineer or how great your team is, you can't predict these things. So essentially, all you're trying to do is run as small chunked experiments as you can to just keep moving forward with whatever you have. And it's very hard to say, I'm going to make five bets and keep moving forward with all five. So it's easy to miss something if you try to take a very wide approach and do five things at once and try to like figure them out. It's possible. I've tried to do it before. It's just a different problem set. Um, or you need some constraints, like it's five different products, but the same customer, right? Um, so I wouldn't suggest that. But But when you get into this question about, could you have done it faster? I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. I found it. It took hell and back to get there, just like always in terms of the emotions and the and the lack of progress at certain times and the pushing certain things and then alignment with the team and then what we need to build and then the customer giving us this feedback and that feedback and all that. So at the end of the day, I don't know how we could have sped it up. I think we did all the right things as we were going through it. Um, and, and, and that's it. That was like how we thought about it. Uh, the one thing I'll say that it's taught me though, uh, that um, I would do differently is we were very focused on conviction on having a bottom up model of having people you start using the product uh, as employees and then it bubbling up to their teams and then it bubbling up org wide. We underestimated the world changing and where it changed was IT teams started locking down services that employees could connect to and bring data from those tools. So for example, um, they're really large companies or even like companies with two or 300 people or more started locking down what services employees could authenticate into using Google or, or Dropbox or whatever. And our service at the time as an enterprise search tool was really focused on you have to connect to something for it to be valuable to you. We had, we had ideas and experiments we ran even earlier that made us, you didn't have to authenticate anything and we could do a whole bunch of stuff for you. But the value of the product and the funnel to create there was very different. Uh, and there are some products on the market that have done a great job with that kind of paradigm, but it wasn't the need that we had discovered. So we never really pushed that direction with our product. So what I'm trying to say here is you don't know. And it's hindsight. And I could tell you five, 10 different things I would have done differently, but do I believe they would have happened differently? No, right? So essentially like, and I've done this over and over again for the last 18 years and like, and helped other people like think through all these kinds of problems, but basically pre-product market fit, it's messy. 
There's going to be a lot of tech debt, no matter how hard you try. And, and, and managing all of it is not even a nightmare. It's not possible. So you just have to essentially what a lot of people would call, you just have to grind it out, right? Until you get to that point where there's fit. And then once you get there, the grind is very different. You're not grinding it out as much as you're hustling, as they say, because you're trying to get customers and marketing and all the stuff that's not just product, right? Before that, it's literally product and like revolving, tweaking it, having all your customer development conversations, doing proper interviews. I mean, we do a ton of stuff. I mean, we once we realized that we needed to watch IT people use these other tools, we spent a lot of time watching them use these other tools, right? And we spent a lot of time analyzing all the reviews out there on these tools to understand what do people love? What do people hate? Like you, you literally have to do so much work um, in the research phase if you really want to speed it up. And so what I'm, again, I'll say it again, we did everything we could to speed it up. Let's put it that way. And there are a few hindsight points where like we were going bottom up. Maybe if we decided we're going to go straight to a buyer and sell top down, things might've been a little different, but that would have been a different business. Right. Mm, yeah. So. Um, yeah. So for me, um, I just sold my company. So I sold Sendable in February uh, after 13 years of Congrats. running the company. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so now, now I'm, I'm looking to start a new startup. Um, everyone's, everyone's asking like, like uh, what's the next step for me? Like, what are you doing next? You know, that kind of thing. So like the, the, the pressure is building, right? I know with you, you obviously have this incredible reputation in the SaaS space and startups. And uh, were you at all concerned about your reputation when you decided to pivot? like how people would react to that change and how did you deal with that kind of sort of pressure? Yeah. Um, short answer is I didn't have it at all. The long, the long answer is, and I would recommend this even if you don't have investors, but we were, we were, and we continue to, and we will forever send an update to investors, advisors, whoever's involved in the company. I don't send it to people that are not involved in the company. Other people do, which is totally cool. I get a bunch of updates from people where I'm not involved in the company because they're okay with that. Um, we don't because we're a security company and we have a lot of NDAs and MNDAs and all that good stuff with our customers because um, you know we're helping them with their most sensitive data and stuff like that. And so that's a caveat. But if we could, we would be sending it to as many people as possible. But essentially, it's the first Monday of every month. So one's going to go out really soon. Um because it's July turning into August. I'm sure this podcast will be out later. But um, basically, we uh, send a monthly update to every person that's a stakeholder that's outside the company. We send that update to our investors, to our advisors, as well as our team members internally. And we have been doing that since we raised money last year and continue to do that. And so if somebody's not along for the ride, they can opt out at any time or they can ask me questions at any time, whether it's employees uh, investors, whoever, advisors, whoever. But the thing is, they don't because the story is there in their heads. They can review it. It's in an email. It's sent every once a month, first Monday of the month on track, 8 a.m., they get the email, right? And they know to get it. And so that one thing, even if you weren't funded, I would I would start doing that for your team members. And the reason is once you start doing that, you start thinking about narrative. You start thinking about storyline. You start thinking about how to make sure everyone's on board. You start thinking about communications in a different way. Um, you start figuring out how to do this. And we were sending these about four or five months before we actually raised money in preparation for raising money and doing the one thing that I think a lot, a lot of people try to debate me on this. I'd say not a lot, but like 20, 30% of the people I talk to about this, they're like, well, why do investors need updates? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, they gave you money. 
They got some equity in your company. They're only there to help. So like, go get their help. How are you going to get their help? Well, you're going to ping them randomly about things. Sure, you can do that. Or are you going to just keep a cadence, right? Just like you do with earnings reports and stuff like that as a public company. So if public companies are doing it, why aren't we doing it? So that that's kind of the the thing that helped everyone just be in the loop and, and just know what's happening. So then it's like, hey, here's why we're doing these things. And then everyone has an opportunity to say something, right? In a way, it's almost like, hey, we're doing this. Here's the update. Like, well, like there's nothing else to it. So I think that ability to make sure everybody knows what's going on was 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 helped me not have to worry about those kind of things. You know, like, oh, you pivoted. That's bad. It's like, I think pivots are good. I don't think they're bad. But I don't view a pivot like we're changing a dire- direction. I view a pivot like we learned a bunch of stuff and we're making adjustments as a result of the stuff we learned. That makes sense. Yeah. So you, I think something you mentioned earlier was like pivots versus hops and like other types of pivots. Uh, what are the different kinds of pivots that you've seen or that you're aware of? Um, yeah. So there's 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 uh, three three kinds of pivots, and the way I think about pivot is basically when you pivot, you're making a critical change to your business that's rooted in customer learning. So I think we already talked about all the things that we did that were rooted in that, and like um, really we had a lot of customer pull as well. So the kinds of pivots that um, kind of I like to talk about, and there's more, but these three are kind of really good summaries. So one is a product pivot. So that's where you learn that one part of your product is way stickier than the rest. And your customers care a lot more about that sticky part of the product. So these are just examples of what these kind of pivots are. A customer pivot would be like, you learn that there's a new segment of customers that you talk to that are willing to pay more for your product than your current customers. So that's an example of a customer pivot. A problem pivot is more like as you talk to your customers and do research, you discover that they have way bigger problems than the ones you're trying to solve. And so our, ours was like a combination of a couple of these uh, as we kind of went through it. And I think these pivots are can be a combination. Again, it's all messy and you're pivoting towards product market fit, which is already messy. And so to me, those are pivots. Um, a hop would be like what Slack did. They And again, I wasn't there internally uh, so I don't know anything about it and no one's talked to me about it, but I wouldn't say what they did was a pivot. They were building a game. They were building an internal tool for chat, had nothing to do with the game, except it helped them build the game, I assume. And then they decided that that internal tool with chat is what they wanted to pursue. There's no pivot there. There's no customer learnings that I heard related to that. And, and there's no like, oh, people were playing the game and they love the chat and businesses were playing the game and they love the chat. And we noticed that. And so then we started building it. We built a chat app, right? And that wasn't the narrative. The narrative was we had this internal tool. We did this game thing. And we just decided to start building the internal tool and giving it to other companies because we thought it was so valuable. That's the narrative I heard. That's not a pivot. That's what I call a hop. And, and again, not dissing that and not saying that's bad. But if we're trying to label things and we're trying to make sure our team's on board, investors are on board, and the outside world's on board, let's, let's give it the right name right? That's not a pivot. That's a hop. What we did with FYI to Nira, that's a pivot. It's, I can justify the learnings. I can say that internally we use that evidence to get everyone to get excited about this and want to do it. So, Yeah. So when Sendable was, as I said before, kind of uh, we're focusing on SMS and email scheduling back in the day, uh, we kind of, like during our pivot, we kind of shifted towards a different niche. We were focused on SMBs before and moved towards agencies. Just curious if you thought about sort of niching down even further from the IT professional, maybe down to like the IT in a law firm or um, kind of niching it down further. 
Yeah. Um, I have lots of opinions about this topic. I think that in our case, as we started digging in, we have found some verticals that make a lot of sense. Um, we've also found that there's enough of them that we don't need to narrow down um, in the way that you did. I think you were in a very, very, very crowded market at, by the point that you were in there. Um, uh, even though that was a long time ago, uh, it was just, if you look at messaging as a category, business messaging, it's very, very crowded. And so what you did was smart because you were able to grab even like what a lot of folks would have just made agency partners, right? Instead, you found a way to like service them specifically for whatever needs that they had um, and not just make them a partner, right? Which is a lot of folks, I think, in your space tended to try to do and stuff like that uh, and add it on. And so what you're really trying to do is trying to map and see, oh, should we just double down on that? Is that enough? Is one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is, are there is there enough wide sort of need? And is it painful enough across the board in enough of these categories that you can go after? And for us, the answer is unequivocally yes. There are some areas and types of companies that I personally want that are more challenging than others. Uh, but I personally want them because I know they're so challenging. If we can get them, then there's just a bunch of dominoes that flaw, fall in their industry and stuff like that. Uh, just like once you get one major enterprise deal and have a great case study from it, you can land a lot of enterprise deals pretty fast if you're just like on it about it. So like, I think for me, the strategy is more like, can we find enough companies in enough categories that we can start developing customer success, case studies, things like that, that bring on the rest of those markets? And in our case, I think we feel really comfortable going across the board. on. Um, yeah. So on the show, we like to talk about things that kind of uh, that you do to propel your business forward that aren't necessarily scalable. So like generally, how do you, how do you manage a running more than one company at the same time? I, I don't run more than one. Um, um, we own crazy egg as well. My wife runs it. And, uh, and uh, I think uh, for me, even at times when it was like I ran multiple ones, it just wasn't the way that it ha it worked on the inside, so to speak. So so the way I think about that is like, and, and this is really pithy and it's, it's a common thing, but it's like, it, it's, it's so, so, so damn true. You find great people, you give them the right structure, constraints, whatever, and then you do get the hell out of their way. And, and I tend to work with people who we develop a working relationship and a working model that works. I would say, it's a working model. So for example, one of the designers I work with, I've worked with him for 16, 17, 18 years. Our head of engineering at Nira, I've worked with him through three different businesses. This is the third one. He joined pre-pivot to four, if you count products or whatever, um, 10 years. And we have a working model. Like I wouldn't even say, I'd say that's the best accurate way to say it. My co-founder and I now, We've built about five to eight products together. This is legit the final one in terms of like the one we're going to just go after because we just see so much signal that this makes sense right now. Um, but we've we're only worked together for about six years. And I say only because I've worked with our head of engineering for 10. Um, and six is already a long time. And you build that many products together and you're kind of in the trenches, as they call it, 
um, trying to get stuff done, right? Like, so there's a working model there that's different than the working model I have with Steve, our head of engineering. Um, so to me, it's like the pithy answer is like, you find great people and get the hell out of their way. And more importantly, you find a working model. So, 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 so I'll, I'll go even further for you. Um, I don't think it works any other way than what I described. I can't imagine Elon Musk doing it any other way. I can't imagine Dak, Jack Dorsey doing it any other way. And what I mean by that is you have great people that do things for you, right? And not for you, for the company, but they're essentially doing it for you because these are things you might be doing if you only had one of these things. But at the end of the day, what's the job of a CEO or a great leader or founder or whatever? Work yourself out of a job continuously. <clears throat> and if you're able to do that, then you, half of the job is hiring the right people to do the job that you were doing poorly much better than you. So I really view it like it's a people problem, people solution, and you just push for that. And that's the way to do it. That's uh, a, a good point. I mean, it, it resonates what you're saying now because part of why I sold the company was because the company got too big for me. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a founder, you know, I'm a startup guy. Here was this company with like 50, 60 employees suddenly. And I was the CEO, like just telling people what the vision is, really. <laughs> Presenting the vision every single quarter and the values. And like that, that's, that's kind of all I was doing. I was like, I was missing that startup-y sort of vibe where you can just try things, experiment, learn. And it felt like the right time to sell. Yeah, and I think I think there's another way to think about that. And again, we can save this for a one-on-one -on -one discussion. But like, I, I find people who are in between things some of the most fascinating like moments. You know, the fascinating people too, because at those moments you, you're saying things like what you just said, right, and stuff like that. You know, I used to think exactly what you did, and then I realized that it's my company, and I can figure out whatever role I want in the company. And so what am I actually chasing or what am I trying to leave behind when I get in that mode that you described? And I think, I think this took me a long time to like, <clears throat> like almost like, uh, like, 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 uh, subconsciously process. And I think a lot of it for me at least had to do with, I'm making up this stuff in my head about what I can or cannot do at my own damn company. And so to me today, I feel very differently than how you do about size. How I feel is that at every size, I get to learn new things. And to me, what I value as a founder, what you were basically saying, which is learning new things and making progress fast. And, and, and so my interpretation of that is that. And I'm like, yes, I will stop whatever I'm doing if that is not true. But this idea that it was fun at this stage or more fun or less fun, I've done, at least for myself, it didn't do me service to think that way. It was a disservice to my own progress and my own life and my business sort of way of thinking. So anyway, we can pause on that. We can talk about it later. But like, but like, I just view this differently now because another thing that really got me and this got me really hard is that there was a point in time as I was building these companies that there were a few folks who said, oh, you're a startup guy. And initially I was like, yeah, sure. Now, if someone calls me that, I usually, I won't get triggered or react, but I take it as an insult. No, I'm a business person. I'm not a startup guy. 
I'm a founder, yeah, but that doesn't make me a startup guy. I'm not like sitting here like if I tweet about something, it's because like it's from experience, right? It's from it's from like the hard scars that are still there from all the things, right? And, and again, you've you've done it for a long time. You know what I'm talking about. And and so I think I think my view is just very different. Anyway, that was a quick tangent for you, but my view is just different. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. From my perspective, it was it was more like just like I was I became like a, a business operator, really. Like I feel like I'm I'm more valuable in the startup when I have ideas and I can get things going, whereas I was just operating the business at this stage. Really, just everything's running smoothly, the company's growing. I'm already adding more value as a CEO of a company that's running so well, you know. Yeah, but it, but 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 it's it's you who made it run so well, right? And so then it's almost like you created a problem in your head by doing your job. And so I'm sure there are ways you could have thought of it differently and continued doing it and got what you wanted out of it. And I think that's the thing. That's the thing that I now knowing what I know, having had countless conversations with people that are in your spot. No, I, I think I said, I would, if it were me, I would have, and again, this is just my opinion. I believe I set up the company wrong if that's the way the company ended up. And what I mean by that is the earliest days when you start introducing certain things and start stacking more people, what do you let go of? What do you still hang on to? Is it healthy? Is it not? Do you take the generic advice that I even just gave, which is work yourself out of the job? Or do you realize where your value is in all these different things? And where the value is where no one else can do it. So even today, unfortunately, unfortunately, even though my co-founder is amazing and really good at this, I will always find a bug that someone else is not able to find, right? And so if that's the case, if that's the case, and I have to use the product or I have to demo it, even if I'm only demoing it once a week, which right now I'm demoing it every freaking day, but even if I'm only demoing it once a week, which is not gonna happen here, it's another thing that I'm hanging on to. And again, I'll change, but like I'm hanging on to it right now. If I demo it and see something weird that I don't like, I'm still gonna blast off on somebody. And I don't mean in a bad way, I'm just like, there's a ticket written, Someone's going to get a message. It's going to be like, hey, why is it like this? Go fix it, right? And like, I don't want to lose the ability to do that. I also don't want to be disruptive when I do that. And usually we lean towards, we don't want to be disruptive or we think someone else should be handling it. But at the end of the day, if you're that person that's going to find that thing and you can't trust anyone else to do that as well as you're going to do it, you have to create a situation where you can do that forever. That's interesting though, because I, I think I disagree a little bit because I think the minute I gave ownership to everyone was the minute the company like thrived, right? Like I, I took a step back. I set KPIs, I gave ownership, made people directly responsible for things. And it's on them to make sure those things are working. So I was able to step back because of that, even though it wasn't best for me, it was best for the company. But you know, I did what was best for the company really at the end of the day. So I was out of a job basically. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and, and I, don't even think, I don't even think what you did is wrong. I would just introduce one other thing, which is something that I heard a long time ago from Jack Dorsey in one of his videos, where he basically says, I'm the editor and I want to edit things. So all I would have done as a tweak to your process is introduce myself and the things that I believe are important, not just for me, but for this business and our customers and make sure I'm able to edit those things. And as I edit at the right phase of these items, the team levels up that much more because I'm able to express what's important 
that they just couldn't do or figure out. So like, I, I agree with you whole, I agree with 100,000% on what you said, but I also agree with 100,000% with what I'm saying, which is like, there's this thing you could do that just creates a structure and a, and a layer, a thin layer, where you're able to introduce your opinions at the right times. And yes, sometimes you do hold your tongue, for sure. Sometimes you say nothing so someone else can learn the lesson, right? But the fun is when you can insert yourself appropriately without being disruptive in a way that's very effective. And to me, it's like, is this, the way I think about it, is this a point of leverage for my time or not? As much as I'm like, yeah, these bugs annoy me or these, or I'm going to find stuff. It's not like I'm sitting there finding all the stuff and bugging people. I'm actually finding the stuff. I might write it in a note and I'll just bring it up when it's appropriate. So I think you go from, you go from just giving it all to being like, oh, hold on. Let's go document more. Let's be the manager. Right. And then figure out how to like bring it in when it makes sense. So I think, yeah, I think for me, like, um, kind of, because I gave so much ownership, I needed to figure out how to communicate my feedback in a way that wouldn't upset people. So I remember like telling someone there was a bug, telling someone in the QA team, there's a bug on the, on the app, can you fix it? She, she just started crying. Like the CEO is telling me there's a bug, I'm not doing my job properly. So I've like learned how to like maybe just sugarcoat it a little bit. So I, I'm curious, like how do you give feedback? Like if you see an issue with the marketing site or a bug, how do you generally, like do you soften it or do you give it directly? Yeah, so... This is where the working model gets really important. And so today, if there's a bug, and, I, and, it's, and it's a bug, depending on who on the team I'm dealing with or would have to deal with for it, I just go to the appropriate person. And so if the bug is something where I feel like, oh, I shouldn't go talk to the individual engineer that worked on it, then I don't. And this is the way we run at, at our company. I do not, and this is going to be sound, maybe sound super weird, but I do not, as a CEO co-founder, have the right to go to an engineer and make them do anything. What I do have the right to do is bug the crap out of Steve until I'm satisfied. And Steve and I's working model is aligned around that. But that also means if I bug the crap out of him on something, he can turn into a certain mode he gets in, which is, I gotta hear it from you three times. And I'm like, no, 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 we're not playing that game. So then I have to be smart about when I go, how I go, and what I go for to him. But I do not have the right to go to an individual engineer. It's not that he's stopping me either, by the way. It's more like, I can't do that. That will disrupt what we are building. That will disrupt what we are enabling and trying to do for customers. So even a few weeks ago, we had we had we had this thing where we needed to do something soon, no matter what. And it was coming from customers, not engineering. Like sometimes they're scaling things engineers want to do, right? And so we went, we didn't go to the engineers. We went to Steve and we said, hey, we heard this crap. We think it's super urgent. And then he comes back and says, okay, here's the trade-off on time. Do you want me to do that? If so, I'm good. Cool. But do you want me to do that? And then we'll do it. And then this is how it's going to impact these other things. But because he is the bottleneck on engineering, because if I go to someone and skip him, 
then he's going to come back to me and be like, you know that thing that you said we needed to do by the end of the month that we were going to get done by the end of the month? You messed it up. And I never want to be the one to blame for messing up our timelines, right? Like that's not okay, right? So I think it's like, again, the working model. What's your working model? What are the rules that are hard rules that if you break them, something will go wrong, you know? And that means you have to be ready for what's going to go wrong if you break them. And a lot of founders and CEOs don't understand this piece of the puzzle because in the beginning, like you said, you're sitting there with the team, building with the team. And then you have to remove yourself. You have no choice, but you don't want to remove yourself in a way where you don't get to have fun. <laughs> no, it wasn't just about the fun. It was timing as well. Like I think, I think, I think similar similar to you being integrated with so many different tools right now, like because of the documents and everything. Sendable was obviously at a risk. Like if Facebook shut us down at any time, that's a huge risk for me personally. I, I, yeah, I. I I completely understand your business and the needs around it. I'm I'm a I'm a very early advisor and investor to Buffer. I know the space extremely well on that side. Um, that's not why I, I know this, but like in general, there's always and this is actually really I think useful for everybody who's listening. But like just like with our pivot, it's never one thing that causes you to do something so dramatic. It never is. So like that's why when people ask you, well, why'd you do it? It's like, well, let me count the ways. Right. Let me count the ways that caused this to happen, the things that had to happen for this to be the thing we did. Right. So like, yeah, it's one thing to say I'm a founder. I like the early stages. I get that, dude. That makes sense. But it's another thing, in my opinion, to say, hey, I timed the market in the best way I could. And it just made sense to do what we did. Right. Like that, because that's really like so what I try to do in my own head when I'm thinking through all these challenging things, what's actually what are the dependencies? And if I have to, I'll go map a flowchart on a whiteboard or something. Because really, what you just said, that's number one. It's like, oh, I don't care if Gavin's happy or not about the, the business and the product. What I care about is that, um, you know, this market is unstable. <laughs> yeah, sure, dude. Like, you know. <laughs> um, I think something else that was actually interesting, after I told the team that I was setting the company, um, you know, as a CEO, you, you don't often get any feedback from your team. Don't know if you get feedback from your team, but for me, I hardly ever got any feedback about how I was doing until I actually sold the company. And everyone said, "Oh my god, we love you!" Blah blah blah. Culture is amazing, all because of you. How do you how do you go about getting feedback from your team and like how you are actually performing as a CEO and, and, a, and a founder? Brilliant question. I think it's 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 one of the most important questions. I I, I, I don't I haven't found anybody that can really truly answer that question without really digging into why do you care about the feedback? Why do you care about the feedback? Because the thing is, if you drill into that, if you get drill into that, there's a root cause for you to want the feedback or a root cause for even as you, us to even talk about this, right? I'm not saying it's good or bad, but like, and the root cause is usually like on the positive side, which is the only side I'll focus on. I want to improve myself. That's a root cause of anybody wanting feedback for anything. Yeah, go well, ahead. Well, I think because we were bootstrapped, so we were fully bootstrapped you know, until the end, the only feedback was from the customers. The only feedback that mattered to me was from customers, really. 
Um, but then I, I wanted feedback from the team. Like, I, it still helps me to know if I'm doing right, if I'm doing a good job, because I had no investors, no one else to tell me if I was. You know, I, I understand, but the investors don't tell you either. Like, so, 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 yeah, and and I like to call it self-funded, not bootstrap, but that's okay. Separate convo. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not bad. It's just it's self-funded. You were self-funded. Let's own that, because like that's the baller side of it. Bootstrap. I don't even know what that means anymore. You were self-funded. You didn't take outside investment, and you built an amazing business that was able to be sold, and like you know um that that's that that's what it is but like uh, back to the point um the ability to get feedback who to get feedback from when to get the feedback and 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 whatever your system is for getting the feedback i think the most effective thing i've found is a few a few a few different areas but like one area is like your example i said something and someone had a reaction and I want to make sure that I'm still able – see, here's the thing. I want to make sure I'm still able to have that conversation and not have that reaction. And so to me, that's all about digging in there and a lot of introspection where I don't need anyone's feedback. I already got it. Right? I already got it. Like I don't need her feedback. Like if it were me, I'd be like, I don't need her feedback. I already got it. Right? I didn't make – like she, she, she essentially took, took what I was saying in a way that I didn't intend which is most of the negative feedback that happens in the world, right? Uh, most, right? You, you didn't have that intent. You weren't trying to make her cry. You weren't trying to, you weren't even mad at her. You were just like, hey, there's a bug. Can you fix it? Right? And like somehow there was just so much pressure on her end because it's you and all this stuff, right? So for us, we just have a buffer, right? If we're going direct to team members that are in and engineering is one of the places where this happens a lot. If we're going direct as founders, we're making sure that there's no better way which is usually go to the person that actually owns that area and be like, yo, this is what I see. What would you like me to do? Right. Cause like that person owns it to your point. You, you have owners in the company, they have metrics, they have stuff, right? Like, and that was your job. Like you took care of that. So, so I think how you get feedback is you basically treat everything like feedback and you basically have an extreme level of self-awareness and I'd be developing those things and worrying about how do I get feedback from the team? Because honestly, they're constantly giving it to you. You're just not paying attention. And then obviously the obvious answer is ask them. I mean, that's the obvious answer, but I can't give you an obvious answer because that's not the reality, right? Like you're not going to get feedback. Like even, even Steve, like our head of engineering, I worked with him for 10 years. He'll give me feedback when I need it. Trust me, like he will. And when I ask for it, he's like, I don't know, man, just do what you're doing. I'm doing what I'm doing, right? You good? Like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need anything. Fine. So like, it's like one of those things where it's like feedback in the moment is more important to us. Like a good example of feedback in the moment. And this is not even feedback. This is just a system we have, which is like, if there's two people talking about a third person in any negative way, we stop. And then we ask ourselves, Hey, can we bring that person in this convo? And if the answer is no, there's a bigger problem. If the answer is yes, let's just do that. Let's can I call them now? Can we can they hop on this call? And we all just talk it out. Done. End of story, right? Now, if the answer is no, then you have a big problem. And you figure out what that big problem is, right? Yeah, that's awesome. I realize we're on time. Just 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 the last question for you really is kind of if you were speaking to obviously our listeners are made up of founders, entrepreneurs, even agency owners. How do you know when it's time to pivot? Like it's obviously a tough decision to make. I know you've just gone through that that whole process. What are some of the mental models or signals that someone can use to know that it's the right time 
to maybe change direction? Everybody thinks it's finding the reasons why the thing you're doing is not working. Everybody, everybody thinks that. And I think that is completely reasonable if you want to say, when is it time to hop? Things not working. It's just not working definitively. No matter who you are, you look at that and everyone says it's not working. That's time to hop. Do something completely different. A pivot is related to something that's working, not something that's not working. And that's the misconception. So when you pivot, it's based on customer learnings, which means something is working, period. I don't know what it is, but something's working because like I'm not in your business, right? But like something is working and it's causing you to think about changing directions. But something is working. There is feedback that's coming in. There is like, you know, a customer sharing a different problem. There's something working, right? And that piece that's working is what you double down on. And that's when you pivot. When you realize that something is working, but it's not working as good as you want it to. And then you go into the thing that's working and figure out what to do about that. Just like you folks, right? Like I saw your journey. I've, I've been around, right? So like you started as one thing. And as you were getting feedback on the tool and what was going on, you got into another thing, right? And But it was a pivot. It wasn't a hop because you're just like, oh, this direction, that direction. It's like messaging in one way to messaging on another in another way. It might be completely different because it's social media versus like emailing and SMS and all that stuff. But it was a pivot. And here's the fantastic thing about these pivots. There are businesses that are still doing the original thing you're doing that are massive and successful. So that's what I'm saying. The pivot wasn't because the thing wasn't working. It was because you learned something and something was working and you decided to pursue that, not instead, but in, 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 with that focus. So, so that, that's kind of my way of, of describing this. You don't know when it's time to pivot unless you're paying attention to what's working. You only mm -hmm. know that it's time to hop when you're paying attention to what's not working. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Heaton. And uh, hopefully Absolutely. we can keep in touch and chat again soon. Yeah, sounds like a plan. <laughs>